Hi there, Duncan Green with the weekly roundup of posts on From Poverty to Power. Um, let's start with an innovation. Shout out to Enla. Enla is one of my students at the LSE and she confessed to being a secret uh, listener to these podcasts. So if anybody else wants a shout out, I hope she's listening. If anybody else wants a shout out, just let me know. I've got no principles, no pride. I'll happily shout out and say hi to the devoted listeners amongst you because um, uh, that's why I'm doing this. Right, this on with the show this week was um, a week of curating. So blogging is sometimes about writing and it tends to vary from week to week. This week it was all about curating. So I had some really good offers of blogs from outside Oxfam, from inside Oxfam. So all I did was um, have conversations with the authors about what might work on FP2P. Um, what, you know, look at a couple of drafts, ping pong backwards and forwards on emails and then publish. And it's something I really like because um, you, you get to find out about loads of new issues and you get, you know, people get a platform with a certain number of readers and everybody seems to be very happy about it. So, um, you know, it's something which has grown over the years as the blogs become more established and is something I really enjoy. So the first one was called Africa's Land Rush. What do we really know? And it was by Vitska Chamberlain and Wegayehu Fitawek. And they both work for Land Matrix Africa, hosted by the University of Pretoria. And this is like people at Land Matrix Africa are, are sort of basically working on truthiness, on factiness, on how do we actually get to the bottom of this big question of land grabs. Um, and they sort of give a, a nice sort of quite a nicely, nice style. They, they give a nice sort of uh, accessible introduction. Remember the global food riots um, set off by sharp spikes in commodity prices in 2008? The biofuel hype as the solution to dirty oil? And the financial crisis that drove investors to look for alternative assets to invest their dollars, euros and pounds? As these two developments came together in a perfect storm and a wave of land grabbing ensued, it came as no surprise that the African continent got thrown into the ring. With its seemingly cheap land and labour, much of which was not being used and need for investment, foreign exchange and jobs, these land deals were a win-win situation, right? So 10 years down the line, they've just published a book called The Transnational Land Rush in Africa, a decade after the spike. Um, and the point they wanted to um, uh, write about on the blog is just how difficult it is to work out what's happened. Um, and this is why I, I say truthiness or factiness, because they are actually trying to work out how many people have actually acquired land and are using it for anything. And they give one example in Ethiopia, three different sources on the land deals in the country give everything from uh, 600,000 hectares to 3.6 million hectares. So what do we really know? Um, well, they say the reasons for the confusion are several. One is, you know, what is a land deal? Is it when an investor signs a memorandum of understanding, an MOU with the government and says, you know, the government and the investor say, we are going to try and find 100,000 hectares of land to develop for, you know, biofuels, and then starts looking. Or is it when they start, when they actually find some land and start negotiating with local authorities, you know, local traditional authorities, local government? Or is it when the deal is concluded and they finally got you know, a contract and can go into production? Or is it when they actually start farming? Because quite often uh, land is acquired, but then it's just used for speculative purposes and never actually grows anything. So what? Yeah, where do you where do you start measuring? The reported numbers may include forestry or mining concessions, which can be big areas of land where not much happens. Really big question: Do you include domestic investors in this? I remember at the time of the the first wave of land grabs, 
people in Honduras, uh, Oxfam people in Honduras saying, why don't, why can't we include Honduran investors? They're even worse than the foreigners and they're coming in and buying up land. So why can't we include them? Whereas, we, you know, uh, Oxfam at that point wanted to focus on foreign investors, presumably because it makes for a better campaign. So, and then on top of that, the contracts are highly confidential. Land registration systems aren't publicly accessible. So not surprisingly, no one really knows. And that means opponents of land grabs find it easy to exaggerate the numbers and the defenders of land grabs sort of talk it down and minimize it. So yeah, a very useful uh, uh, introduction to the difficulty of measurement and finding out what's going on. If anybody wants to look harder, the Land Matrix Africa is nobly maintaining a searchable database with the best available information. So go there, yeah, you put in what you're looking for and you can find out you know, what is known, which is not enough. The second curated post of the week was um, somebody called Robin Broad and uh, her husband, John Kavanagh, got in touch. I've known Robin from way back on work on the World Bank. And they, they have been, um, they've just published a book. It's called Water, The Water Defenders, How Ordinary People Saved a Country from Corporate Greed. It's published next week, actually. Um, and what it is, is a, is a struggle between local people and what they call big gold. So the big gold mining multinationals. And it's a real, you know, David and Goliath story. And, you know, the reason they published the book is because David wins. You know, the little guy has won and stopped big gold. So I'll just give you a couple of, uh, of, sort of paragraphs to give a sense of this. With the rapid rise of gold prices two decades ago, global mining companies sought to re-enter northern El Salvador. Frontline communities, first excited at the prospects of promised jobs and economic growth, began to educate themselves on the impacts of mining on their already scarce sources of water. They studied these toxic consequences of mining and in, uh, in El Salvador and in nearby Honduras. What they learned shocked them and they built a national coalition, coalition of groups, the National Roundtable Against Metals Mining, La Mesa, under the slogan, Water Not Gold, and they pressed their government to ban mining. La Mesa and the scientific evidence on which they based their opposition was powerful enough to convince the government to put in place a moratorium on new mining licenses to give it time to study the issue. And that move was enough to prompt two global mining companies to sue El Salvador in a secretive corporate bias tribunal housed in the World Bank Group in Washington, D.C. At that point, the water defenders of El Salvador reached out to us and other international allies to help counter the lawsuits. An epic battle ensued on the ground and in the World Bank's court, which we narrate in our new book. Much of the book shares the voices of the water defenders from our decade of work with them. And the amazing thing is that in El Salvador, a country with glaring political divides, the government vote, the parliament voted unanimously to ban all metals mining to save the country's rivers in 2017. So basically, the water defenders won. And then the final point they make is that El Salvador is not an outlier on this. You know, in our book, we chronicle the spread of strong grassroots movements elsewhere, successfully pressuring their governments into restrictions on mining in Costa Rica, Panama, Argentina, Colombia and the Philippines. Most recently, in February 2021, the inhabitants of Cuenca in Ecuador voted overwhelmingly to ban mining in its five watersheds. So a couple of things there. One is like, how dumb were the, were the gold companies suing um, you know, the Salvadoran government? That creates the perfect recipe for an international campaign. Problem, solution, villain was the recipe I was given when I arrived at Oxfam. And by suing them in court, they created a place the World Bank, they created a villain themselves, you know, and, and a problem 
people not being allowed to defend their water and not being allowed to make decisions on mining. So yeah, fantastic own goal by the by the uh, gold companies. Um, also, I was just you know, um, it's lovely to hear about El Salvador. I, I travelled there a lot. My the woman who became my wife was a BBC journalist there in the 1980s during the Civil War. Um, and so I have a very soft spot for El Salvador. I campaigned on El Salvador in the UK. So it's just really nice to hear a positive story. Normally when you read about El Salvador, it's all about gangs and grim. Um, nice to read a positive story there. So thank you, Robin and John, for that. The third was uh, an Oxfam uh, blog by two Oxfam colleagues. Um, what can we learn from 200 case studies of emergent agency in a time of COVID? So this is a really interesting project we've, I've been involved in where we got a bit of money out of the LSE, the International Inequalities Institute, to um, bring together a bunch of people to look at what kinds of popular organising is emerging in response either to COVID itself or to government responses to COVID. Um, and it's a really new model for Oxfam. You know, instead of us doing a bit of research and publishing a paper, we've created this forum, which is sprawling into all these different groups working on everything from youth to HIV AIDS to uh, women's organization to social movements. Each of them has got a little cluster of activists and researchers who are coming together and having conversations about what they're seeing. And then we're, we're complementing that with a big database. So um, 200 case studies. Um, which have been coded and put on a database. And we've got some uh, Oxfam country offices doing their own research. So we've got these three prongs. Um, this blog is by the middle one, by the, the, the database people. So Niranjan Namputiri and Filippo Artuso um, uh, wrote the blog. Niranjan's been doing the crunching on these 200 case studies. Um, and uh, we're gonna make the, the database public later this year, but Niranjan's just summarizing some of the patterns that he discovered. Um, so, and these he identified as where civil society organizations fell short, communities stepped up. So CSOs often got sucked into um, service delivery, into working at quite high levels, and also had real trouble getting, you know, because of lockdown, getting into communities. Communities often, because they're local, were, were best placed to respond in lockdown and come up with, you know, um, services and solutions. So it's been a real expansion of community-based activism, community organization rather than always channeling it through CSOs. The pandemic is a social glue for coalition building. So in lots of countries, big coalitions of civil society organisations, community organisations, different kinds of organisations have come together in response to the pandemic, and that might have a legacy. What The thing we're interested in, or the thing I'm interested in in this project is what's going to endure, what's going to be the legacy of this COVID period, in politically and in terms of social organisation. Third point that uh, Niranjan and Philippe uh, identify is structural shortcomings have been exposed. So things like inequality, the lack of a proper social security system, those things have become highlighted and are likely to become an advocacy target, uh, both during the pandemic and afterwards. They're seeing changes in the social contract, which are quite subtle. So in some cases, citizens have been empowered. In some cases, Governments have cracked down and seized central control, but you know it's shaking up that um, negotiation and the political settlement between citizens and state in many countries. Fifth one is harnessing the flexibility of digital. So you know everybody's online. Everybody's kind of being catapulted into becoming not. I don't think I could quite describe myself as a digital native, but I'm not quite such a digital barbarian as I was before the pandemic. Um, Everybody's in the same boat. So 
um, there is a real transformation in the tools that activists use, and that's likely to endure. But there is the risk that some people are being digitally excluded. So what are we going to do about the people who don't have connect connectivity, who don't have uh, internet, yeah, that kind of thing. Then the final point, which kind of follows on from that, the growing space for younger generations. So younger generations have moved into the activist space partly because they're better at digital and partly because they're less at risk and they're more able to you know, go out in public. So is this also going to be, are they all going to be sort of pushed back out to the margins once the pandemic is over? Or will this be a tipping point and we'll see more youth activism and more youth voice in the kind of um, uh, overall world of activism in the years to come. Very interesting. So we've got two webinars coming up. On the 5th of April, Niranjan is presenting the database work. And so if you're interested, come along for that. On the 24th of March, before then, we've got a discussion with the conveners of all these different clusters about the patterns they're seeing in their conversations about emergent agency in the time of COVID. So I'm really enjoying this research project. It's very participatory, very horizontal, and very unpredictable, which are three things I really like. Final curated post of the week is, what is COVID-19 telling us about leadership? And this is more of the, the top level leadership le uh, uh, level, the yeah, national sort of um, high level. And this is a guest post from Heather Marquette and Sean Her Sean Herbert at the University of Birmingham, uh, who've just got a monster paper out, 140 odd pages called Governance and Conflict, Emerging Impacts and Future Evidence Needs on COVID-19. And they reviewed hundreds of pieces of research and analysis. So they say, COVID-19 has so far proven to be a unique and ongoing global natural experiment on leadership, one with lots of twists and surprises. So some of the things that were predicted was, you know, will democracies or authoritarian regimes be better at um, responding to COVID? Will rich countries do better than poor countries? And they say, some of the most successful responses have been in democracies and in non-democracies. And while the same is true when it comes to failures, poor countries and rich ones alike have done well or have done badly. So basically regime type and income level have not acted as good predictors. So what about women leaders? You know, lots of people have tweeted the picture of the leaders of the countries that have been doing best on COVID and surprised and they're all women. Um, countries with women leaders do have lower deaths so far. And the authors they review find this is likely to be the result of a lower risk appetite with women-led countries all locking down early, a more democratic and participatory leadership style, and more decisive and clear communications. But they point out that there are only 19 countries out of 194 with women leaders. So they call that a pretty rubbish sample for an experiment. So please bear that in mind. So given that, what do we know about COVID-19 and leadership at this point? And I'll read this out because it's quite subtle, nuanced sort of conclusions. Firstly, as with any compound complex crisis, we've seen the importance of leadership that is agile, adaptive and capable. This isn't just about individual leaders, but rather whether or not political and governance systems enable adaptive ways of working that reward capability and punish incompetence. Good outcomes have often been the result of systems that have enabled leaders to test, learn, adapt, to admit failure, to learn lessons and to change course. Secondly, trust in leadership is absolutely essential. In March 2020, so right at the beginning of the pandemic, Francis Fukuyama wrote that it will ultimately be the state's capacity and above all trust in government that will determine how effective COVID-19 responses are. 
especially whether citizens trust their leaders and whether those leaders preside over a competent and effective state. A year later, this statement still holds. Trust supports more adaptive policymaking because it lowers blame avoidance and the political risk to leaders of admitting failure. Finally, it's important to remember that leadership failures aren't just about individuals, but are also the result of systemic institutional failures, ones that undermine good decision-making and don't hold decision-makers to account. Good outcomes often reflect good political processes rather than simply good leaders. And the reverse is true for poor outcomes. Bad politics breeds distrust. Distrust closes down the room for manoeuvre that leaders need um, to cooperate beyond their immediate circle of trusted friends and cronies. And in many contexts, the longer term consequences of this could be damaging for stability. In some, it could be sowing the seeds of future conflict. So their conclusion, we need better politics, not just better leaders, and we need it now. Very good, robust bit of research from Heather Marquette and Sean Herbert. And we'll end on that and have a great weekend and we'll talk next week.